Uh, this partnership between the uh, Star Tribune and WCCO Radio, we call it Plain Politics. John Rash and DJ Tice are here. John, this has been anticipated for a while. Robert Mueller, who has been a part of the polit- political scene for a long, long time. He's a military hero. He is a patriot. Uh, first appointed director of the FBI, unanimous vote. Then when he was extended two more years, unanimous vote. Uh, when he took on this role, he became a villain for the president, for the president's supporters. He became a hero for Democrats. The report comes out. The initial Bill Barr summary, the further Bill Barr summary. Then Robert Mueller had the, you can't even call it a press conference. It was the statement, about a 10-minute statement, and he said at the end, uh, I don't need to testify. This is my testimony. Well, they eventually compelled him to do it. It was hyped. Bob Mueller is still speaking. He's now speaking to the Intelligence Committee after speaking to the Judiciary Committee earlier today. Give me your overall assessment so far. It's quite clear he didn't want to speak to the Congress in this method, and now we see why, because he continuously feels compelled to return to the report to mention specific pages and paragraphs of a 448-page report, and it's often confusing. He himself at times seems confused, and to be charitable to him, I think anyone who's been involved in this long of a process and this voluminous amount of work can't remember chapter and verse of everything that has happened. And so uh, instead of the Watergate era, John Dean, there's a cancer growing on the presidency. I think the most often repeated phrase during this hearing is, can you please repeat the question? And that doesn't make anywhere near the soundbite nor the breakthrough that some pro-impeachment Democrats had hoped to get out of Mr. Mueller. Well, you know, it's not really my purview to Mm -hmm. uh, comment on this kind of thing, (laughs) which is another— What uh, page was it? Another frequent um, phrase we've heard today. Uh, You know, two reasons I think Mueller really didn't want to be there today. One is that nobody can appear before one of these congressional committees uh, and seem as sure-footed— and uh, authoritative as he has been able to seem as the mystery man on the mountaintop uh, all this time. You get in front of one of these committees and you've got people who are often themselves, you know, pretty good cross-examiners, and they want to lead you somewhere you don't want to go or they want to trap you in in one way or another. And so you inevitably uh, end up seeming sort of evasive, you know, dodging and and weaving and, and trying to avoid questions. Uh, But, uh, you know, in his defense, the other tricky part of it is that we are in a funny uh, no man's land between law and politics. Yes. He is a prosecutor. His job is to decide whether there is, you know, sufficient evidence beyond reasonable doubt to make certain kinds of charges, uh, bring certain kinds of actions. And, of course, he's in a political arena now where everybody is uh, making judgments uh, you know, based on ideology, based on politics. And, uh, you know, so he's he's neither fish nor fowl. So let me stay with this first with you, DJ, and, and John alluded to it. And I say this respect because I really believe Bob Mueller is a patriot and he served this country ably. Uh, I watched multiple networks leading up to this show clips of Bob Mueller before when he testified. And the person I saw in those clips compared to today is a very different person. I th- and, and I, and I want to repeat, I don't think he has to know where every single verb and noun and everything, and if he says, wait, what page we're talking about, that's fine. But I do think he struggled with 
concepts and parts that he and his staff wrote. And, and it is, uh, to me, I've been startled to watch some of his fragility mm-hmm. out there. And, it's, and, and I'm going by my own judgment. And then people on both sides of the aisle who I respect are trying to say it with a lot of deference but saying, wow, this is not the Bob Mueller we've seen before. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people have, have noticed that today. Uh, you know, the simplest explanation may be that the last time you saw him, he was younger. Yeah. <laughs> We're all getting older. Yes. And, uh, you know, as as the years go by, each year uh, matters a, a little bit more. And, you know, this is a this is an intense kind of uh, grilling uh, that uh, that he's undergoing. I do think that this is about as hot a seat as a person can be in. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it, it's, it's very important to him clearly that he not misstep. That he not uh, say you know what things that he doesn't want to say or go uh, too far. So I think he's you know being hyper cautious as anyone would be. But I don't think there's there's any doubt that he's been a little bit overwhelmed. You know I think that notably there was no big John Hancock signature by Bob Mueller when this report came in, and he didn't even individually sign it. This was the product of a team, and I think that's why among many reasons. He really wanted the report to represent what he had to say, and he telegraphed that quite clearly to the national media, to certainly congressional leaders, and said that this is our body of work. We have put these executive summaries in, so if you want to soundbite it, in in effect, that's the way to do it. I don't want to appear before this, and as DJ quite rightly mentions, you know, he is quite constricted in terms of how he can characterize certain aspects of this whereas everyone in Congress from both sides of the aisle are completely unrestricted and have clearly shown so in terms of how they project their perspectives in terms of the overall nature of the investigation, let alone Mr. Trump or his sons or whomever's culpability into it. So it's a really, really challenging format on top of all the other aspects that DJ brought up. So it has been a challenging day for him. You know, somewhere along the way we had a – sort of a frustrating dance. Uh, I don't remember which representative it was, uh, but she seemed to be determined to try to get him to utter the word impeachment. Yes. At around and around they right. went. And yeah. he, he was not going to do it. I don't believe that she got it out of him he, or he any didn't. real acknowledgement no. that that's what he was talking yeah, about. Yeah, it was an interesting contrast. That's a very good point because I think the Democrats basically just wanted him to go along with the report. And he only did that a little bit, whereas some of the Republicans, John, I'll go to you on this, they wanted that narrative of the Steele dossier, the, the poor treatment of Mike Flynn, Papadopoulos, struck some of those reports. I think a lot of us believe are unsubstantiated. Some others have some questions on it. These are, these are things that many Republicans believe in their heart. Some believe for uh, political purposes. And, and I think the Democrats watching – wanted to see that old Bob Mueller kind of to push back at that. That just didn't take place. And there's been a bit of pushback at a couple times, especially when his team has been impugned by some of the Republican representatives. Yes. But beyond those individuals who uh, many Republicans rose in defense of, ultimately and most consequentially is the president of the United States, with many positioning this as ultimately unfair to him and his administration. And to the degree that there was any kind of non-cooperation or pushback by the president of the United States. Republicans, especially in the first set of hearings, um, put positioned it as he was innocent and was trying to establish that innocence. So my sense is the vast majority of Americans are not watching this 
or listening to this live, they'll get news accounts of it. It might entrench from the, some from of, their normal sources to just further entrench where they stand. Quite key aspect there. I, I concur, and so I think that it'll probably solidify opinions. But there, at least to date, does not seem to be the electrifying moment that's going to get the vast majority yeah. of Americans and elected representatives to rethink their strategy on this. So can I just uh, uh, pose one more part of this? Because there's so many other things going on. DJ, I'll start with you, but John, I want you to chime in also. It's very clear again from from what came about today is that Bob Mueller and his team had decided right away they weren't going to indict the president, that they had made that decision. Okay, And you think about all the conjecture for the 22 months. Could this lead to challenging the DOJ and the policy of indicting the president. Now, he did say it's potential that when the president leaves, if he leaves after this first term, that he's out there. If that was the feeling all along, should that have been made clear by Sessions and Rosenstein and others that Bob Mueller is going to conduct an investigation and others may face indictment? But guess what? The president at least through this review, is not going to face the potential indictment. And then if that's true, do we need another apparatus? Let's put let's take Donald Trump yeah. out of it. Are we just saying going forward that no matter what a president does while in office, he's not going to face indictment? Yeah, well, this is not a new concept. Uh, this it has never been definitively uh, adjudicated yeah. to the Supreme Court. Uh, but it was the assumption even back in Nixon's time. Yeah. Uh, Nixon was the unindicted co-conspirator. Yes. That was the famous language of the time right. where he was obviously seen as part of the conspiracy, but he was the unindicted co-conspirator. Now, what they didn't know here, of course, is how many other people they might end up indicting. I mean, they did, yeah, of course, right. indict and convict people on other kinds of crimes, but sure. even on a, a Russian conspiracy, they might – it conceivably, they thought, well, we might end up indicting – 12 of his associates, yeah, right? And he'll be the unindicted co-conspirator. So they didn't know that they might not. And that would feel very different if that was the situation yeah. we had now. The fact that they found no criminal conspiracy uh, to indict anyone for on the on the Russian cooperation on the piece, conspiracy part, that, yeah. you know, that's what left us with a situation I, I suspect very few really anticipated. What do you think about just that part, John? And, and let's just, just take it f- – Let's take President Trump out of the mix. At some point, if it stays this way and another special counsel steps in, should they just say, by the way, we're going to investigate and we might get a lot of people on whatever it might be. But the president is just separate. We just have to accept that. And should that be separate? Well, indeed, if the American public and particularly Congress concentrated their minds on the fact that the special counsel cannot and will not indict a sitting president there, that's why impeachment exists, whether people think that that's the right path or yeah, not. Fair. But it seems that particularly many pro-impeachment Democrats had hoped for a really clear, unmistakable signal from Mr. Mueller, yeah. either when the report came out or today with these congressional hearings to say that that's the path that he thought they should take. And clearly, by the way you know, he has conducted his career, the, this entire investigation – that's not a decision that he's ready to make. So it goes back to the political aspect. And then you go all the way back to Speaker Pelosi, who clearly seems to think the way to adjudicate this with the American public is through the 2020 election and to defeat President Trump. And even if we, by the way, in the House, if she was thinking this way, were able to impeach President Trump, the Senate, of course, would never convict because 
it's under Republican control. Yeah, exactly. And so that it somewhat firms up her position with her colleagues and especially the more restive ones and, and some of the younger ones, including the the squad, as we've talked about, the yeah. four representatives who are increasingly the attention of President Trump himself. You know, it does raise the old question of the independent counsel, too. Right. Uh, if you remember Ken Starr, that who Starr. investigated yep. Bill Clinton, that was under the Independent Counsel mm-hmm. Act, uh, which is a different kind of creature who was really uh, under the Congress's authority. And he did recommend impeachment. I mean, that was essentially what his report was, was a referral to mm-hmm. the House yeah, uh, right. for impeachment proceedings More direct. because he was not a prosecutor yep. in the executive branch. Uh, well, many people had a problem with the Independent Counsel Act as a, as a potential separation of powers problem, and, and maybe it was. But in any event, they let it lapse, and now we're back to the special counsel, which was what we had again in uh, in Watergate, and, and so the, the rules are different. But this may inspire people to rethink yet again whether the independent counsel is a better way to go. We've got about two minutes before I have to go. We could get to about nine topics, but let's let's touch on Al Franken here. A lengthy and, and at times favorable portrayal of Al Franken emerged in a, a New Yorker story by Jane Mayer, including Franken succinctly saying, I blew it. I shouldn't have stepped down. I should have taken this through the Senate ethics uh, hearing, the committee, the process. A number of senators, uh, all either Democrats or independents, said they regretted the decision. Others have not, like uh, Kirsten Gillibrand has said, nope, I wouldn't change. Elizabeth Warren and others. John, you first, then DJ. Do you see a realistic path where Al Franken runs for political office again in this state? Certainly, I think he'd get a different hearing right now than in the immediate wake of the resignation. But as always, the opportunity has to be there. There are two sitting senators. One of them is running for re-election, so it's not going to be one of those seats. And where he lives in the 5th District, you have Ilan Omar, who has shown every indication that she's not only going to run, but she's been able to raise a tremendous amount of money. So, you know, it certainly could happen, but I don't see any immediacy to the issue. It seems like a long shot to me. You know, I think one thing that's notable is, I mean, yes, you get people coming forward now who have calculated that the safe thing to say now is that I have doubts about, uh, yeah. you know, ganging up on, on Franken. And back in, and when it happened, they found it safer to, you know, be mm-hmm. with uh, Gillibrand. Especially uh, with Roy Moore. But, going but I think time. another piece of it is that when push came to shove, we've discovered that among his colleagues, which is not necessarily the, the political public, but among his colleagues, Franken didn't have that many friends who were prepared to go to the mat for him. Yeah. Uh, when he got in trouble, you know, they were nowhere to be found. Uh, and you got to remember when he first ran for the Senate, he was a very controversial figure within the DFL mm-hmm. because of, you know, the, 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 the vulgar adolescent humor that he'd made his name with. I also think we have to remember, I, I still stand by his explanation at times during that whole day, they were feeble. I mean, it, it, and, and after he gave one or two, he was just so dismissive of questions. I, I, I think he failed in that area myself. we got to go. We're up against clock. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. John Rash and DJ Tice from the Star Tribune. This is Plain Politics. Let me tell you about uh, Giants Ridge, this remarkable place that I get a chance to go to hopefully a couple times a year, and it's really not that far away from the Twin Cities metro area. Three hours, three and a half hours, 
If Adam Carter drives you, maybe 90 minutes. Uh, two phenomenal golf courses. My favorite is the Quarry. The Legend is the original. They are in outstanding shape. They are very playable. They are accommodating for the scratch golfer, and they work for the person who plays once a year. Customer service with Giants Ridge, as good as any place in the metro area, let alone outside the metro area. If golf bores you, iconic Iron Range. These accommodations, hiking, biking, trails, and just a beautiful site. It is a must-visit, I'd say multiple times during the summer, but give it a shot. Best way to do it? Online. All that great information available to you, one place, GiantsRidge.com.